there is no shortage, right, of celebrities uh, who uh, say the wrong things, who uh, know how to put their foot in their mouth, are clueless. Uh, They may have a Hollywood zip code, but they dwell in la-la land. Uh, Somebody who who will make a statement like, like what he does is equivalent to fighting in Afghanistan as a soldier. Did you hear that? That's Tom Cruise, right? Uh, Our famous uh, rapper, or well-known rapper, I should say, said that what he does in a concert is, is just as dangerous. He says he puts his life on the line at every concert just as much as a police officer or somebody in battle. Absolutely clueless. The... Uh, Latest uh, clueless statement from uh, a celeb uh, is uh, Gwyneth uh, Paltrow. Paltrow. I'm just going to call her Gwyneth from now on. I've never known anybody named Gwyneth. Anybody here named Gwyneth? I'm so glad. (laughs) Mark raised his hand. All right. Just call Mark from now on. Please call him Gwyneth. All right. I've never known a Gwyneth. I probably never will know a Gwyneth. You know what a strange name Gwyneth is. But but anyway, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, right? She she came out with a uh, a statement, and and, and once once the statement went public, uh, it set on fire uh, Twitter and and other social media um, people that were were, were just making comments. We, the, what she said was that her life is so difficult, it is, it is way harder than the average mother who works nine to five, right? Now, in spite of the fact that she's a multimillionaire, she has a full staff, she has a chauffeur, she has, she has a caretaker, a housekeeper, a nanny for her kids, right? This is the lady, by the way, who called her daughter Apple, you know, so that just tells you where she's coming from, right? So, so, so anyway, she makes this statement that, that seriously, her, her choice to work on one film each year, even though, even though she makes millions of dollars, right, is so much harder than the average mom who, who works a nine-to-five job. I, I don't know if she's ever heard the statement, uh, a man's work is from son to son, but a woman's work is, right, never done, Right. She should ask her housekeeper or her nanny about that. Maybe she'll get some information. But, but one woman wrote an open letter to Gwyneth, and it was published in the New York Post. And this is what she says. It's a little sarcastic, but she says, Thank God I don't make millions filming one movie a year. It's what I say to myself pretty much every morning when I'm waiting on the, on the Metro North platform about to begin a 45-minute commute into the city. Just thank God I don't make all that money. Another woman said, I just wish Gwyneth was not quite so tone deaf. You see, she says, when you're fortunate, when you've been blessed, as she says, I consider myself blessed. I've got a loving husband. I've got a good job. I've got a family that supports me. She says, she says this. She says, you have a, an extra responsibility to be grateful, empathetic, and not oblivious. And, and I, say, I say to that, that lady, yes, amen. Gwyneth, in addition to being absolutely tone deaf and clueless, Gwyneth doesn't get it. That rhymes, doesn't it? Gwyneth doesn't get it? No, doesn't rhyme? I don't know. I hear it rhyme in my head anyway. But, but, but anyway, what, what, what Gwyneth really lacks more than anything else is, is this thing called empathy. 
Let me share the definition of what empathy is. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Empathy is the ability to feel and experience the felt, the felt experiences and emotions of another human being. Empathy is somebody who gets it, somebody who understands because they've been there and they have done that. I want you to put that on hold for a minute, okay? Everybody, put it right about here, right? Put it up on hold. All right? We're going to connect the dots in a minute. I just want to tell you one more, one more quick story. Uh, anybody know who uh, James Irving is? James Irving? It just so happens that James Irving is one of the individuals who walked on the surface of the moon. You know, uh, let, me, let, me, let me just share with you. He was being interviewed by a journalist who, who asked him a really important question. Now, before I tell you the question, I want to ask you a question, all right? And here's my question to you. How many people, how many men do you suppose, Americans obviously, do you suppose walked on the surface of the moon? Anybody want to take a guess? 12, 6, anybody else? 5. Five. Now, let me, let me just tell you this. The window, the window of, 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 of the Lunar Man landings, right? It was from J- uh, July of 1969. I remember watching it on TV and falling asleep. It was so boring. But anyway, uh, to, to uh, uh, December 1972. So it was a short window of time. And, and, and Dave was absolutely right. Twelve men walked on the surface of the moon. And nobody even knows who James Irwin is. And probably, maybe other than Dave, nobody else can tell us at least another six of the astronauts who walked on the planet. So Dave, don't just hold back that information that you can tell us later, right? But, 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 but here's, what, here's what the journalist asked him, and this is an important question. He says, what did you feel when you stepped off of your spacecraft, off of the spaceship, and your feet touched the surface of the moon? What was the first thing, the first thoughts that went through your mind? What, did you, what was that experience like? What did you feel? And, and this is what he said. He said, it was the most profoundly disillusioning and disappointing moment in my life. It was, it was the most profoundly disappointing and disillusioning moments in my life. Are you kidding me? You walked on the surface of the moon and you were disappointed? Now, the journalist was almost speechless, and he, and he asked him the question, how could standing on the surface of the moon be so dis- disappointing? And, and this is what Irwin said. He said, He said, all my life, I've been enchanted by the romance and the mystery of the moon. I've sung love songs under the moon. I've read poems of moonstruck poets. I've embraced my lover under the moonlight. I've looked up at the wonder of the moon. But the day that I stepped onto the lunar surface and I reached down at at my feet, I came up with nothing but two handfuls of gray dirt. I can't describe the loss of feeling that I had of the, rom- ro- the, rom- the romance and the mystery that was stripped away. And then he said this to, to conclude the, the interview. He says, there's no more moon in my sky. There's no more moon in my sky. Now I want to connect the dots. Erwin's uh, sense of the, the loss of awe and mystery was replaced by the 
by the ordinary. It just seems so ordinary to him. The, the dusty gray barren surface of the moon didn't live up to his romantic expectations. And listen, for those of us who are not as privileged to take a flight to the moon and back, by comparison, our life has got to be really so ordinary by comparison. So, we do the same thing, right? Week after week, month after month. You know, we, we, we basically, in comparison, have pretty uneventful lives compared to somebody walking on the surface of the moon, right? But maybe, maybe more, more astonishing than that is that God walked on the surface of the earth. He lived a routine week after week, month after month, ordinary life for 30 years. He lived as a Middle Eastern Palestinian peasant. Had a job six days a week. Don't know how many hours he worked, probably from from sunrise to sunset. And he did it without complaining. He lived such an ordinary life, but he did it in such a way as to relate to ordinary men and women to be able to identify and to be able to feel what we feel and to experience what we experience. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be bone weary. He knows knows the the minutiae of family relationships. He he knows what it's like to to have to pay a bill. He knows what it's like to owe a debt. He, He knows all of those things because he's been there and he's done that. No one can ever say, To Jesus, God with us, God, Emmanuel, God with us. No one can ever say he is ever clueless. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what we feel. He doesn't know what it's like to be in my shoes because he has been. As difficult as life sometimes is, he knows what life is like. And as ordinary as life sometimes is, Jesus is empathetic. He is sympathetic. He is able to be touched with the feelings of our very weaknesses. Jesus is, in fact, the epitome of empathy. He, he, he fulfills the definition completely, having entered into the experience of our emotions and our feelings from, from both spectrums, from, from, from ordinary to, to having a life that was turned upside down by Tremendous pain and and sorrow. Unlike Gwyneth and Irwin, the son of God is not tone deaf. He gets it. He understands what it's like. It's the very empathy of Jesus that makes him so approachable to the humble and makes him so repulsive to the arrogant and to the elite that Jesus entered into our human experience. God gets it. His blood, sweat, and tears is the proof that Jesus gets it, that he could never be accused of being tone deaf or being clueless. Some men are given the title, a man of power, a man of wealth, a man of, a man of fame. Some, some people are given the title, men of influence, but Jesus receives the distinctive title by the prophet Isaiah in probably one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, as the man of sorrows. Familiar 
with grief, the man of sorrows. And that's the title I want to talk to you about this morning. When Charles Spurgeon announced his sermon title to his congregation as the man of sorrows, he realized that some in the congregation would suspect that it was too dreary of a subject, too mournful of a theme. But he quickly dispatched that theory by stating this, that while Jesus suffered greatly, yet his sufferings are way in the past, and that our looking back to those sufferings really are the triumph of victory. The struggle, while severe, was a struggle that was won nonetheless. The Savior is no longer in Gethsemane. The Savior is no longer on the cross. The cross on that back wall doesn't have Jesus or his figure on it. His bruised heel meant the crushing of Satan's kingdom and the power of sin and death broken forever. Here's a statement I'd like to share with you that the only cure and remedy for all of our sorrow was for him to become the man of sorrows. The only remedy, the only cure, the only prescription that could have brought healing to our sorrows was that he would become the man of sorrows. Just as the rod of God in Pharaoh's court swallowed up the rods of the magician, so Jesus swallowed up our grief and our sorrows and our pains completely upon himself. The breach of the law was committed by a man and therefore a man had to be the one to repair it. The law was broken by a man and so a man had to fix it. Jesus The man of God became sin for us who knew no sin that we, through his offering, might become righteous. The man of sorrows is the precise definition of what empathy is, the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. God became the man of sorrows, the prince of anguish, the king of suffering for us. The last week in the life of of Jesus, uh, one-third of the gospel of Mark, one-third of the gospel of Matthew is consumed with the suffering of Jesus, one-quarter of the book of Luke, and one-half of the gospel of John deals with that one last week period in the life of Jesus. The the amount of scripture devoted to that last week is is overwhelmingly disproportionate. And the reason for it is to underscore the price that was paid and the suffering of Jesus to bring us our freedom and to glorify his father. Now, the incarnation is absolutely a mystery, but what what makes it exponentially a mystery beyond our calculation is that he should be summed up. He should be identified with this distinguishing title as the man of sorrows. That that should be the thing that he's known for more than anything else as the man of sorrows. When we look into this, this, is, this really is holy ground. This, this really is piercing, piercing, gazing into the holy of holies. And looking into the very heart of God. And that's what we plan on doing this morning by studying the title, Man of Sorrows, Acquainted with Our Grief. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity, maybe speaking to your child, maybe to a grandchild, when you brought that child to a place of understanding that Jesus is God. Children will inevitably ask the question, 
But if Jesus is God, why did he die? Have you ever been asked a question by a child? If Jesus is God, then why did he die? They, they asked that all important, simple question. And, and the answer, the answer is profound. The answer is, is that the, the spikes that pierced his flesh were not made out of iron. They were, they were forged by our sins. The crown of thorns that was placed upon his brow that disturbed his appearance was not grown in a garden, was the outgrowth of our lust. The things that Jesus experienced, the scourging, the, the pharaohs that were made in his back were, 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 were not the, the works of men, but the sins of men. And as a result of that, the man of sorrows took upon himself the burden and the penalty of your sins and my sins. Isaiah said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we're healed. By his wounds, by literally by the stripes of Jesus, we are healed. He suffered our condemnation. He endured our agony. He died our death. He carried our sorrows. He could never be accused of being clueless. He gets it. So I want us to take a look at the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and, and at least in our mind, we, we need to take our shoes off because this truly is holy ground. And even if I had the tongue of angels, I couldn't, I couldn't even scratch the surface of the depth of the mystery of what is taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've preached it many times before in the past, and each time I have preached it, I have seen something new, but I've come away with more questions than I've had answers. The 12 men who walked on the surface of the moon, they hardly even remembered. We hardly even remember their name. But when God walked on the surface of a garden called Gethsemane, he changed heaven and he shook the gates of hell. He was burdened with the weight of sin. And I believe with all my heart that the reason why, the, the reason why Jesus endured so much there that he sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane is because this is where the battle was fought. This is where the victory was won. Because once Jesus was arrested, there was a, there was a, a calm composure upon Jesus, a courage, and there was a, there was a sense, of, an awe of which Jesus was absolutely in control. From that moment when they came and they said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am. And they fell down backwards. Jesus was absolutely in control. But when we see him in the garden, we see him in agony. We see him being distressed. We see him, we see him first go to his knees and then fall face, ground, face down on the ground. And the reason for it is, is that because this is where the battle would be, fun and, would be fought and won for us. So look at Matthew Chapter 26 with me, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane. He went with his disciples. He went with 11 of the disciples. Judas was not numbered among them at that time. Gethsemane is the place 
It's a, it was a garden. It was the, an olive grove. It was where gnarled and twisted olive trees had grown probably for centuries. And there Jesus went on many occasions there. It was a peaceful place. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that is James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The word sorrowful is full of sorrow and troubled. The words, and I'm going to describe some of those words in a few moments, but but they are, they, are, they are so graphic in the description of what Jesus is experiencing here. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That is that Jesus felt as if, this is not figuratively speaking, this is literally speaking. That G, what Jesus was saying was, I feel like I'm dying. I feel that my life is slipping from me. I feel so overwhelmed with sorrow. Then he said, stay here and watch with me, which means to pray. He was asking them to join him in prayer. And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my Abba, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Can't you just stay awake for one hour and pray with me? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now here is Jesus experiencing his own weakness in his own physical body, relating how they themselves were experiencing weakness. And so he says in verse 42, He went away a second time and he prayed and he said, my Abba, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were so heavy. Verse 44 says, then when he left them and he went away once more, and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Now, let me just say that last sentence there. He prayed a third time. If anybody, if, 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 if you've come underneath the teaching that says, it is wrong for you to pray for something more than once, because if you pray for something more than once, you're not asking in faith, that dis- destroys, that last sentence destroys that concept. Jesus prayed through until he received the answer from his heavenly father, and so should we. D.A. Carson said this, in the first garden, not your will, but my will, but mine transformed paradise into a desert, made it a wilderness, and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not My will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings a man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. That's what Jesus was doing. He was bringing bringing the possibility of you and I being brought into the very gates of glory. The thing that strikes me so much about Gethsemane is, is... the, the terms that are being used here, agony, 
if you look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see the words that are used there. And the words are so, so dramatic. They are full, he is full of sorrow. He's distressed. He's confused. He's conflicted. He, he, he's experiencing what might be described as, as somebody who is looking into something absolutely horrific or, or horrifying to the point of shuddering underneath the, the weight of it, where, where, where a man's hair could literally turn, turn white in an instant of time. And this, is, this is the kind of phrasing that the gospel writers are using. Jesus was gripped by unbound horror and was suffering mental and emotional anguish as he first went to his knees and then down on his face to the ground overwhelmed, so overwhelmed that he began to sweat. The Bible says great drops of blood falling to the ground. The father looked at this picture and and dispatched an angel to strengthen the son of God in that moment, according to Luke 22, verse 43. So an angel came and ministered to him. And and the question is, what did the angel do? Did, Did he strengthen him physically? Did he give him new energy? Did the angel communicate some message to Jesus that was from the Father? Did, did the angel say, Jesus, you know, the, the, the certainty of your victory is, 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 is sure. Satan will soon be defeated. He will, his doom is sealed. Was it just his, com- the, his presence that brought comfort to the Son of God in that moment when he felt absolutely alone and loneliness because his disciples kept falling asleep and he was being forsaken of heaven. All of those things. All of those things, we, we have more questions than we do have answers. So here's my question to you this morning. Why would Jesus be in such anguish and distress in the face of a future that he himself prophesied on many occasions? Why would Jesus be in such anguish why would he be so disturbed about something that he, he clearly prophesied over and over again that the Son of Man would be mistreated by the chief priests and by the scribes and by the Pharisees and that on the third day he would rise again from the dead. He would be crucified, but on the third day. He said this over and over and over again. So why would he be so disturbed? Because of this thing called the cup and the hour of what was taking place. You know, the battle that was taking place here was so intense that I, I believe that Jesus believed that he was not going to make it to the cross, that he was going to expire, that what was happening to him was so overwhelming. When he said, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death, I, I believe that what Jesus was praying for was not to be saved from the cross, but rather that he would not prematurely expire in the Garden of Gethsemane. Charles Spurgeon is, is one who shared that thought. He said this, he says, I do not consider that the expression, this cup, refers to death at all. Nor do I imagine that the dear Savior meant for a single moment to express even a particle of desire to escape from the pains which was necessary for our rescue, our our redemption. In other words, what Spurgeon is saying, what he's suggesting here is that the battle in Gethsemane is what Jesus was praying for deliverance from, that it was so severe, it was, it was so brutal that was taking place that he did not want to prematurely die before he ever made it to the cross. 
The cup was not the final conflict. It was the present conflict in which Jesus was engaged. One of the things that we've got to realize is that, is that this cup is not just death. It's not just the martyr's anguish. It is, it is eternal death. It is eternal punishment. And as much as we can wrap our brains around what that means, and it's beyond our comprehension, it's beyond description, this still remains a great mystery. As, as much as the incarnation is a mystery, it's even more so mysterious for us to fully comprehend that what Jesus was, was about to suffer was tantamount or equivalent to an eternal separation from his father. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I, I, I got punished quite a few times. I was telling somebody recently, I can't remember who it was, but I was telling somebody recently, I, when, I was, when I was young, maybe about five, six years old, maybe seven, like that, uh, I was being disobedient. I refused to take a bath. You know, it was like Saturday night, Saturday night, you took a bath, you know, whether you needed it or not, you know. So I, I refused to take a bath. So my father picked me up, clothes and all, and dumped me in a, in a, in a tub of water, you know. That wasn't painful. What was painful for me, the, the thing I remember, and I've been punished a couple of times, you know, but, but the thing that I remember more than anything else was when I was in the seventh grade and I was accused of pushing a classmate down a flight of steps and he got hurt. And I was in danger of being expelled from school and, and, and neither my teacher nor, nor my parents believed that I was innocent. And when you are punished for a crime you didn't commit, the, the pain is so much more sharp. It's so much more severe. Now, could you imagine, just take that exponentially and, and apply that to, to the one who is innocent, who never spoke a word, who never, who never thought an evil thought, who, who, who never did an evil deed in his entire 33 years. And then you begin to understand the pain that Jesus was beginning to feel as God was laying upon him the iniquity of us all. The only explanation for this is here is love. Like the song says, vast as an ocean, loving kindness like the sun when the prince of peace our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Here's a, here's a line from a song that we're gonna sing a little later on. Man of sorrows, lamb of God, by his own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. I like what Max Lucado said. He said, on the eve of the cross, Jesus made a decision. He would rather go to hell for you than go to heaven without you. He'd rather go to hell for you than go to heaven without you. Jonathan Edwards was a famous preacher from the 1700s and he had a perspective of the Garden of Gethsemane and what, and what Edward, Edwards would say is that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he compared it to, he compared it to the fiery furnace that was, 
heated seven times hotter by King Nebuchadnezzar and who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into this fiery furnace. And he said, this was, this was the fiery furnace that, that Jesus was looking into. And, and this is what he said. He said, the agony was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. The father, as it were, set a cup down before him. He now had a near view of that furnace into which he was about to be cast. He stood and viewed its raging flames and its glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded. In other words, what Jesus was about to endure, he had to know fully, Full, full well what he was about to do because he had to be a voluntary. It, it had to be a voluntary choice. It had to be a, an explicit choice of his own. And, and, and that magnifies for me the love he has for us. And it magnifies for me the obedience that the son has modeled and demonstrated for the father. Now, if just the taste or just the glimpse of the sufferings of what he was about to endure, sent the Son of God into shock, then what would the actual experience of it be? Death was not a penalty that Jesus endured. It was his destiny. It was not the unavoidable task. It was his mission. What I want you to to take away this morning is this. The only cure and remedy for all of our sorrow was that he became the man of sorrows. The cure for our sorrows is that he would become the man of sorrows. You see, ultimately what Jesus rescued us from is the only furnace that we really ever have to fear. That ultimate furnace Jesus tasted death so that we would not die. He experienced the wrath of God so that we would not experience the wrath of God. I'm going to close in a minute in prayer, but before I do, let me just, just give you instruction. I, I, I asked the, the worship team to, to sing the first song while we're seated and listening to the words of the song. And then at some point, Andrew's going to ask you to stand and join and, and as you stand, I, I, I want that stand to be the expression of the gratitude. You see, I said a little while ago that it is only right when we who are so privileged, we who are experiencing such a, a good life that he has given to us, should be grateful, should be thankful. And I want you to express that gratitude this morning by singing with all your heart. So, Let's just have a closing word of prayer together this morning. So, Father, as we come this morning, we thank you, Lord God, that Jesus, you endured not only the cross, but you endured Gethsemane. You sweat great drops of blood because of the agony, the anguish, the ignominy of what you were about to endure for us as us so that we would be rescued, so that we would not experience the eternal furnace, eternal death. 
And we thank you so much for that. We can, we can, eternity itself is not sufficient enough to thank you and to express our gratitude to you. We, we want to live for you. This, this house wants to live to extol and exalt the name of Jesus. That's our primary mission. And so we thank you today, Lord God, for that. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, this is why Jesus came, so that you would be rescued from the second death, this, this eternal destruction. And I'd like to just give you an opportunity, if you would, to just receive Christ in your heart this morning, if you would. And you could do that simply by an extension of your faith, saying something like this, Jesus, come into my life. Be the Savior and the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sins. I, I've heard some of the things that you endured for me. I believe that I embrace that. And I, I thank you that you are the substitute for sinners. If you did that this morning, please share that with somebody. Tell somebody you did that. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you. Let's all just listen to the words of the song as they begin to share with us this morning. Thank you.